My approach to this idea of having a mission statement is have one, but be really attuned to the way in which the world is changing and be willing to adapt your mission statement as the world needs something different from you. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Lisa Kahn. Lisa is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Icebreaker, which is an online event platform that builds community and gives people a sense of togetherness. Previously, Lisa held leadership roles at Facebook, the MIT Media Lab, Forward.us, and President Obama's campaign. Lisa started her career in politics after seeing Obama making a speech in Washington Square Park and resonating deeply with it. Throughout her career, Lisa has consistently focused on healing societal division through community and technology. She's launched dozens of partnerships with academics, peace builders, and community leaders around the world. Lisa is on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Washington Post, Vice News, and more. In this episode, we chat about a whole range of things, including community across politics and tech, how to create a sense of togetherness virtually, finding common ground with people we don't agree with, Lisa's incredible wedding, and so much more. So let's jump right into it. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. To start these episodes off, I always like to learn a little bit more about my guests and how they actually became a community builder in the first place. So kind of a random place to start, but I'm curious what you were like in high school and you know, what were some of your interests, extracurriculars, and how did you find community at such an early age? Oh man, I was weird in high school. I think that I didn't totally know myself in high school the way that I became sort of familiar with myself in college and beyond. I was born in Los Angeles and I grew up in Orange County, California, specifically in Laguna Beach. And if you ever watched the TV show The OC and there was a reality show on MTV that was really bad called Laguna Beach and it was post 9-11, pre-economy crashing. And so people were really into spending money. And I think that when I was growing up, there was a lot of community, but high school specifically, there was a lot of superficiality and commercialism and people sort of hiding behind things. And so I was really interested in musical theater and I was the co-president of my mock trial team. And I started an organization that was for physically disabled adults. And I did all these things, but when I sort of like put myself back in the memory of being in high school, I was so insecure and weird and self-conscious and cared about the wrong things. I was really into school and getting good grades and my friends, but I didn't know myself the way that I do certainly now and the way that I, I started to after that. I think it's hard to find somebody in high school who does know themselves. I would even argue that most people don't really know themselves throughout their 20s. And it's really later on when you're 25 or older that you really start to come into your own and really start to understand your identity. I also know that growing up, your grandma was a really big inspiration for you. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Oh, man, she was the best. Her name was Gertrude. And she was an activist in the civil rights era. So she was 
a powerless person by all societal measures. She was Jewish, she was a woman, she wasn't wealthy, she wasn't particularly educated, and yet she saw things happening around her that she wanted to, to change. And so she did community organizing and she organized people and she fought for change and she accomplished things that sound little today like desegregating the swimming pool next to my dad's elementary school. But actually in the context of that era and that time and of her own sort of structural powerlessness is so, so, so incredible. So when I was growing up, I would hear these stories of what people can do when they come together to make change. For me, politics did not feel like the avenue for that until I went to college because you know, growing up it was Bush, it was Clinton. They weren't the most sort of grassroots community inspiring leaders. And so I, I saw sort of service as a way of building community to make change and really not politics until I got a little bit older. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she sounds like an incredible woman. And I'm so glad that you had that influence and that inspiration growing up. I'm, it sounds like it was really pivotal in what ended up being your career and your journey. So what did you end up studying in post-secondary and how did you start your career? I studied social movements. So I went to NYU. My grandmother, Gertrude, she lived in New York City. So her husband passed when my dad was pretty young. And she moved from Virginia where she grew up to New York City and I would visit her in the summers. And it was such a beautiful contrast to where I was from. Laguna Beach was so perfect and pretty white and pretty sort of wealthy and the sun was always shining and it was beachy and everyone was tan and blonde. And New York City had a little bit of everything and it was, it felt really real and really, really diverse to me. And so I found recently actually an essay that I wrote in fifth grade that was asking me to describe what my life would be. And I, in the essay, I wrote that I would go to NYU, which is funny because I don't remember particularly wanting to go there, but apparently I, I knew about it and I did when I was young. So I went to NYU. I studied social movements, primarily in the U.S. context. And when I graduated, I really wanted to work in electoral politics and help elect awesome candidates so that they could pass great legislation and represent us well. It's incredible, first of all, that you wrote about yourself going to NYU, and then it just sort of happened. I've heard that theme across a lot of people's stories where it almost like subconsciously happened. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you ended up making the transition from politics to tech? Totally. So the third election that I worked on was a city council campaign in Los Angeles, where I live now. I was working on that campaign right after President Obama won re-election in 2012. And so you know, I started around Thanksgiving of 2012 and the election was in March of 2013. And during that time period, Sandy Hook happened. And I vividly remember watching TV and watching the parents that were impacted and watching the images of the teachers and the students and just being shocked and mortified and devastated by what guns in our country could be used for. And it's interesting because I didn't have previously a personal experience with guns or gun violence. And so it wasn't that it kind of captured anything really specific in that way. But I had this theory of change at that point that if you elect good people, good things will happen. Sort of the job of elected officials is to represent us. That's the basics of how our democracy works. And so I monitored the gun conversation pretty closely at that time. I saw that 90-something percent of Americans supported a variety of gun violence prevention policies. And so I thought, okay, great. You know, our elected officials, their job is to represent us. And so they'll vote in the right direction here. And then they didn't. And I was confused. And I recognized that there was this whole set of things that happened in between elections 
called advocacy. And that's when policies are made and that's when people aren't paying attention and communities aren't really engaged. I was sort of like wrestling with this and thinking about this and technology had certainly been a part of campaigns I had done previously tactically, but I didn't really think about tech or the tech community in any, any way until during that time, one of the strategies that our campaign implemented was we had these policy dinners on Sundays and we would bring together leaders from the district. And there was one dinner where we were talking about 911 response times and traffic. And there were a handful of technologists that were in the room. And I remember just being totally blown away by the perspective they offered and by the ability for technology to solve problems that humans alone sometimes can't solve. And so I had this sort of theory of change that I wanted to organize the tech community to be a voice in politics and to sort of bridge the gap between elections and enable all Americans to have a voice in policy making in between elections. And so it's sort of amazing when you have a mission statement like that and a theory like that and you're just sort of open to opportunities. I was asking people, do you know anyone interested in tech? and politics and sort of long story short, my sister-in-law, who at the time was my brother's relatively new girlfriend, her friend's friend was starting this thing. And I you know, had one of these sort of serendipitous conversations, which turned out to be the early stages of an organization called Forward US, which was founded by Mark Zuckerberg and a bunch of other tech leaders to organize the tech community to do exactly this, to be a voice in politics. And so I was one of the first hires at Forward US in the spring of 2013. And the entire strategy of that organization was and still is organizing the tech community, building technology to democratize people's access to our political process. And I was the national organizing director of that organization for about two and a half years. That's really incredible. And I love what you said about having that personal mission statement when it comes to navigating your way through your career. I think, you know, people these days will have so many different careers and so many things that we could do in our lifetimes. And something like that really helps to guide you and it helps you really filter the opportunities that are coming your way and really bring your best self to those opportunities. So I think that's really cool. And I hope that, you know, people that are listening will think about what their own personal mission statement is and how that applies to their career. You can be flexible with it. I mean, the world has changed so much so quickly. And this is obviously an extreme year, an extreme example of that. But that's been true throughout human history. My approach to this idea of having a mission statement is have one, but be really attuned to the way in which the world is changing and be willing to adapt your mission statement as the world needs something different from you. While you were working at Facebook, you led the company's efforts to strengthen community and build empathy on the platform. What are some of the key initiatives that you worked on to do this and how did you measure success? Facebook is another incredible company with brilliant people and incredible resources. So when I was at the Media Lab and looking at Twitter data, what we ended up discovering was that the 2016 election was much more about polarization than anything else. We could only make sense of the data if and when we classified by political tribe or political community. And so it was interesting at Facebook, Facebook had in 2017, just right when I was joining, changed its mission to be give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. And the really interesting thing about that mission statement is that those two pieces of the mission statement, give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together, are sometimes in conflict. 
Sometimes giving people the power to build community actually tears us apart and doesn't bring the world closer together. And so while I was at Facebook, I primarily worked with Facebook groups and a little bit with newsfeed, but more so Facebook groups. And we were really interested in helping people find, join, and find meaning in online digital communities. And so a couple of the initiatives that we worked on, there was a bunch of product stuff. And if people listening are, are Facebook group admins or Facebook group members, I'm sure you have seen over the course of the last three years, many improvements and many new features to make Facebook groups better and more user-friendly and more engaging and more meaningful. But we also rolled out programs. So we launched a program called the Facebook Community Leaders Program, which was a fellowship program for around 50 Facebook leaders. So folks who use Facebook in one way or another, either Facebook groups or, or even Instagram or sometimes even Oculus, which is another Facebook company, WhatsApp, to build meaningful community online. And we provided financial support to those uh, organizations and training and resources and really importantly, community. It was really amazing to sort of bring folks in a room together who someone who had been running a Facebook group for a couple of years, full time, never met anyone that they worked with and actually had never met anyone else who ran a Facebook group and to suddenly be in a community of people just like you with the same challenges and the same experiences, finding the same thing is kind of funny was really, really cool to sort of allow this community of community leaders and community builders to actually start to see themselves as community leaders and community builders. Yeah, I remember seeing that program. And actually, I, I applied for it maybe a couple of years oh, ago. Did? Yeah, for my work with Fuck Up Nights. I mean, Facebook wasn't the huge part of what we did really. I mean, obviously, things have really shifted. But at the time that I was applying, I really was focused on our offline in-person events. And I was just exploring how to maybe start up a Facebook group for this community. So I remember coming across that and just thinking like, wow, what an incredible community for community professionals. That's something that's so unique. I want to chat a little bit more about the commonalities when it comes to community between politics and tech and what you've seen across all of your roles. I think you have such a unique perspective on it. I think about community sort of at its core being about giving and receiving. You join a group of people who you have something in common with and you give investment of some kind to that community of people and in return you receive benefits. And that could be a sense of belonging, a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of learning. And humans are humans and groups are groups. And we, for all of mankind, have been organizing ourselves into groups to get that very human need to belong and to feel a sense of purpose and identity. And so regardless of what brings people together, and it could be a political campaign and a candidate. It could be a love of sneakers. It could be a tragic event. Really at, at the core, the way that humans form groups and develop identity and a sense of belonging is pretty consistent sort of across. I think what politics does really well that isn't always part of other forms of community is sort of leadership development and training. So the way that things work in campaigns is the way that campaigns scale with limited resources to contact every voter that you need to persuade and, and ultimately turn out to vote is by training and creating layers of leadership. And when you invest in people and you give them responsibilities and you give them areas of ownership and then connect them to each other in a way that reinforces those areas of ownership and that sense of leadership, people do incredible things and feel much more of a sense of ownership and success 
and identity and belonging. And it's interesting in a kind of for-profit tech company context, what that translation looks like. And that's something that, you know, we're at Icebreaker honestly really figuring out right now is what does it mean to build community when you are also a like profit-driven technology platform and company. Absolutely. That must be such an interesting challenge to work on. So let's jump into Icebreaker. Can you tell me a little bit about what Icebreaker is and what inspired you to create it? So Icebreaker is a new kind of online event platform that is designed to strengthen communities and give people that sense of togetherness that we typically only feel in person, which is not an option for a lot of people right now. And honestly, it isn't an option for a lot of communities that are more geographically distributed anyway. And we started the company in November of 2018. And it's interesting that I'm one of three co-founders and we all have sort of slightly different life experiences and perspectives that brought us to agreeing that Icebreaker was the solution. For me, I had seen through my work studying polarization and extremism and through like sort of looking at Facebook groups as a really interesting solution that the way that we sort of increase empathy and shared humanity is through more kinds of communities. When we both sort of talk about community, I always think it's not about having one community, but having multiple communities. We all have within us so many different identities and interests, and we should be a part of as many communities as possible that foster and cultivate and align with those different dimensions of identity and interest. And once we do, we have the opportunity to interact with people who we otherwise might disagree with in a different aspect of our interests and sense of community and belonging. And so I was really interested in how do we create a digital experience that is soul nourishing and joyful and meaningful for people while strengthening communities and reminding us of our individual humanity and then of our shared humanity. My co-founder Perry kind of came to it from an interest in loneliness and addiction. And Alexander, who's our, our third co-founder, came to it from a series of experiences that he had also working in politics and social movement building. And so I had sort of this like checklist of the things that all of the academics that I had partnered with in the past thought made a healthy, inclusive technology. And we embedded all of that in the design of this platform that feels actually just really fun and really joyful and really wonderful to people who experience it. But sort of behind the scenes is also fostering that sense of connection and, and shared humanity and belonging. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a cool platform. I used it as part of like a happy hour for a conference that I was at specifically for community builders. And I loved it as an event planner myself. I've obviously experimented with a lot of different technologies and Having attended a lot of virtual events over the last few months, I've also seen quite a few different things. And something that really stood out to me was that when you were chatting with somebody, you only see that person. You don't see a screen of yourself. And I think that it was just something that I didn't think of before. But I realized, you know, when I was on a Zoom call with somebody or in a breakout room, part of you is distracted and almost like self-conscious looking at yourself on the screen. And with this, it was totally eliminated. And you're just so like zeroed in on what the person is saying and those prompt questions are there and it just made for such an awesome experience and it's because it's purpose-built specifically for this. What are some other unique features that the platform has and what are other things that it has that other event platforms can't really provide? It's interesting because there's this concept called nose biting distance in behavioral psychology, which is that if you are physically close enough to someone to bite their nose, literally, you somehow view them as more human and you end up being more civil and patient and empathetic towards them. It's like some caveman fight or flight response that all of us have within us. And so part of that particular feature that you called out is designed to psychologically kind of replicate this idea of nose biting distance, which makes you a little more patient, a little more understanding 
understanding and a little bit more empathetic of the person that you're talking to, which is really interesting. At a high level, the platform is designed to be inclusive, engaging, and participatory. So every aspect of it is opt-in. You enter into a Zoom, and I love Zoom. I use Zoom all the time. This is no way a critique of Zoom. Zoom does what it does so, so, so well. I'm very grateful, especially these days, for Zoom. But oftentimes at around six people, Zoom conversations stop really being engaging and participatory. You enter in, your camera and your audio are on, but at some point you hide your camera, you turn off your audio, and you don't know how you're supposed to engage or participate. And these weird like power dynamics sort of come into play. You know, I think a lot about any kind of unstructured space actually just replicates those power dynamics or perpetuates them. So if you feel powerful in a conversation, either due to rank in the organization or the community, societal status, race, gender, personality, all these things contribute to how comfortable you feel entering into a space and talking. And in a Zoom room, it's often the people who are powerful that feel really comfortable speaking up and dominating the conversation. An icebreaker is really designed to equalize those power dynamics and democratize people's voices and conversations. It just makes it so accessible. And like you said, it just gives people a voice and it lets people be heard and participate in a way that really makes it equal for everybody who's on the platform. So I really, really love what you're building. I'm curious, how did you decide to leave your full-time role at Facebook? to focus on icebreaker full-time. It was difficult and then it wasn't difficult. I think endings are always challenging, but then as soon as the new something starts, you sort of forget that it was challenging. I was at MIT and uh, MIT was really obsessed with entrepreneurship. I was someone who... I always sort of felt that you shouldn't start a company just to start a company because that's really ego. It's really you wanting to be in charge of something and having a title that you love, but you should start a company if you feel like you have to. And if you feel like there's no other way to do the thing that you want to do. And ultimately, you know, having worked with Twitter and then at Facebook and having an evolved personal mission to kind of go back to that part of the conversation, which was to heal societal division through technology, I ultimately concluded that the only way and the best way to do that was actually to start a new platform that from day one kind of embedded the values of bringing people together, humanizing each other, empathy, etc. And so... I had known Perry, who's our, who's my co-founder, who's our CEO, about five years prior to starting Icebreaker. Um, he had started a different company, and uh, I was actually his first customer. And so we we worked together in, in that way, you know, years and years ago. And he had left that company and was sort of exploring something new. And so we were just chatting a lot. And he and Alexander had actually built like a really early, early, early prototype of Icebreaker and invited me as a friend to sort of see it. And I saw just the potential of this concept, this new kind of online event. And it was initially a bit of a no-brainer for me that I had to be part of it and I had to sort of help shape it and bring it into the world. And then there was sort of the whole process of, okay, are we going to raise money? Are we going to bootstrap? What are everyone's titles? Do we get along with each other and work well together? So there were a few months of the sort of rational mind making sure this was actually a good idea. And then last, I think it was like early November, something like that was my last day at Facebook. And uh, the following Monday, we were together and we were doing it. Just again, it sounds like such a great team that you guys have and really amazing that you were so rational about it. And I think that's such a common thing that you said, you know, they're like, why start a company just for the sake of starting a company? That's not the way to go. And I think it's the same thing with a community as well. I think the best communities are born out of a true need and, you know, people really starting it to scratch their own itch.
So we're recording this during COVID-19. So the past few months must have been so incredibly busy for Icebreaker with so many communities transitioning to virtual events and demand surging. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's been like the past few months? It feels like forever, but it also feels like no time at all has passed. So early March, so we, we were in beta for about a year and a half. And we had quite a few hosts on our platform and participants, but all of them I had a personal relationship with. We were learning from them, we were partnering with them, we were running experiments together. And so we had this form on our website that was, you wanna use Icebreaker, fill out this form. It literally was like one day I went to bed and I woke up the next day and there were like hundreds of people had filled out this form. And that just continued for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was really wild about those early days. A bunch of things were wild, but the first thing that was wild was that we had these aspirations of, you know, one day everyone will use Icebreaker. Well, Icebreaker will be used in the classroom and Icebreaker will be used among grassroots communities. And Icebreaker will be used to help people fall in love and Icebreaker will be used at companies. And we sort of wanted all the things, but we knew as people building a business that you had to pick a market and launch for that market and price for that market and all that stuff. And so what was really wild about those early days was that every market we were ever interested in, and then some, were all interested in us and coming to us. And so we hadn't yet launched such that anyone could just go and host their own event. You had to talk to us. We had to give you some special tag on our database. And so the first month of COVID was completely crazy for that reason. Like we were onboarding thousands of people every single day. It was a fever dream of this weird period in March where I would just have so many meetings. And we all remember early March, people were emotional. And so we'd have these like onboarding conversations, but the first 20 minutes needed to be, how are you? What's going on for you? How are you being impacted? How are you feeling? And so it was a truly unbelievably bizarre and amazing and sad and scary, but also exciting time for me as an individual. Right now, community is probably the most important thing ever. People are really craving that human connection and you have something that's so perfect for it and just so well positioned. The other thing that I've observed is that I am someone as a woman and as a woman founder who has always valued EQ as much as IQ. I think that the way that sort of teams form and communities are built requires a real sense of emotional intelligence and the ability to empathize with others and to motivate others and to regulate your own emotions and all of the various components of, of emotional intelligence. But interestingly, in the workplace and then sort of like business articles, it's not talked about or valued quite as much as strategy and output. And the interesting thing about COVID is that in addition to accelerating this trend towards remote work, I've also observed an acceleration of the appreciation of EQ. Because if you don't know how to read that a member of your team or your manager or a colleague of yours is struggling, and if you don't know how to talk to them about that, there's no way people can work. People cannot get things done without sort of the basics of being taken care of and feeling safe and secure emotionally in, in place. And, you know, life is life. Like people always have challenges and things that are going on with them. What's really interesting about this time is that it's not a secret. It's not like, you know, somebody is secretly going through a divorce or somebody is hiding the fact that they just had a miscarriage, which happens all the time for, for people in the workplace. But it's not safe to talk about and it's not asked about. But when we're all aware that there is a global pandemic, that people are sick, that people are out of work, that people are home in their small apartment with their husband and their kids, you can't avoid talking about these things. And I think that's a really beautiful evolution. 
Absolutely. I think empathy and community is just everything right now. You know, I'm actually really curious in your experience through politics and what you're doing now. Do you have any advice for helping people find common ground? You know, like sometimes people are so rooted in their opinions and often so angry and passionate about what they believe in. How can we create dialogue and, you know, really listen and bridge some of those divides? At a high level, community is what connects us. When we think about the inability to find common ground, I'm reminded of the very definition of polarization. So it's a word that is used a lot in the news and you read about polarization and you have sort of these understandings of what the phrase actually means. But there's a type of polarization that I think is really important called affective polarization. So polarization is the divergence of beliefs or attitudes or ideas to the extreme. So you love something, I hate it. But affective polarization is when I stop viewing you as a human. I don't like you. I can't be in community with you because you disagree with me on this one thing. And common ground is not about agreeing on our opinions or becoming more moderate in our beliefs, but it's rather acknowledging the right to exist and your humanity as a person who disagrees. So just to give you kind of an example of of how this can happen. I, as you know, worked in democratic politics for a lot of years. I identify as a progressive Democrat. I love President Barack Obama. Like these are very much part of my ideology and, and sense of self. A few years ago, a friend that I had grown up with passed away due to heroin addiction. I found out that she had passed when I was at work and I didn't really want to talk to anyone about it. I didn't know if they would judge me or if they'd understand, but I felt really alone. And so I joined a Facebook group called Affected by Addiction Support Group. And I posted in the group about my friend. And it was, you know, some devastating kind of teary-eyed post about she was beautiful and we lost her and I'm really sad. And hundreds of people responded to me, some of whom were former addicts who said, thank you for this story. I'm going to stay clean another couple weeks because of you. Thank you. Others were moms who lost their daughters, you know, who wanted to talk about it. And I developed a relationship with this woman in this sort of group, in this interaction, who was just so there for me and so wonderful and had gone through this with her daughter several years before. And, you know, eventually one day I was like, I wonder what this woman looks like or who she is. So I clicked on her Facebook page. We're all stalkers a little bit, right? We all go deep. So I clicked on her Facebook page and she had a cover photo on her Facebook page that was also a photo of Barack Obama, except for in her cover photo, Barack Obama was in a jail cell with Hillary Clinton. And I realized, okay, this is a person who, if I had met under any other context, I would just write off. I wouldn't want to be in community with this person. But because we connected first on our shared values, I'm never going to agree with her about her political stances probably, but we were able to find common ground and build a relationship. And if ever she and I were to have a conversation about issues in politics, there would be this foundation of shared identity and connection. And so the sort of academic language around this is, is this idea of connector identities. We all have within us so many different identities that allow us to connect to different kinds of people. And some of those are polarizing identities, your political, maybe your religious identity, But if we can find these identities that connect us, our roles as a parent or as a lover of skincare or as a person who suffered a loss from addiction, we can at least start these conversations with a sense of shared humanity. (laughs) 
So let's shift gears. I want to chat a little bit about your personal community. I'm curious why you picked LA as your home base. I know you've traveled quite a bit and you're originally from LA, but what made you decide to settle down there and why is the city really special to you? I'm obsessed with Los Angeles. I'm in my 30s and I think that it probably wouldn't have been good for me or the right place to live in my 20s. But where I am in my life right now is I'm married, I have a dog, I'm in tech, but I've never been someone who wants to just be in one industry. So I really value diversity of thought. I love surrounding myself with people that are different than me and think differently than I do. LA is just so awesome for kind of my life. The initial sort of impetus for moving to LA was there were sort of a couple things. One, uh, my family lives here. My parents live here. And my parents are in their 70s. And I just sort of had this feeling before we moved that I wanted to be closer to them. And interestingly, about six months later, my dad had a heart attack. He's doing great. He's totally fine now. But it was the kind of situation in which I'm really happy that we were here and we were we were near him and even now during covid you know i've been able to drive and see my parents from a distance which i wouldn't have been able to do if we lived in a different place and then the sort of secondary piece of it was you know my husband and i and he's a venture capitalist and he works really hard and he had done startups before we had just sort of been grinding for like a decade like we just been working our asses off all the time like all we did was work and we were living in san francisco before we moved here which is an obvious place to live. I was working at Facebook. I had to live there. And, you know, we were paying like $4,000 a month in rent for a one bedroom. I was traveling for work every single week. My commute was an hour and a half. He was running a startup at the time and was working until 10 p.m. every day. And we just were not happy. And we looked around at our community in San Francisco. And with all due respect to everyone who lives in San Francisco, everyone was kind of like that. Like people had these individual solo identity of of your job title. Like that's all you were was your job title. And if your company was doing well, you were doing well. If your company wasn't doing well, you weren't doing well. And it's so cheesy, but he and I went on a trip to Thailand (laughs) and like didn't have Wi-Fi and sort of came back from that trip. And we were like, we should just try to be happy. Wow, that's awesome. Like when the city is right for you, you just know. And I'm so glad you guys were able to make that decision. What communities are you part of and why are they meaningful to you? I'm a part of a lot of different communities, some online, some offline. One community that I'll call out right now is I'm a part of a a community called Alpha, which is a community for women in technology. It's a digital community founded by this awesome woman named Kadrin. When we first started Icebreaker, I had two male co-founders in this industry that is, you know, shockingly male-driven. I'd always been sort of interested in women in tech as kind of an issue, but there were all these just sort of odd things that happened early on from people assuming I was the assistant and asking me to help with scheduling, just like all this bullshit. And I took it personally. I really personalized it. And I thought I wasn't showing up with enough seriousness. There was something that I was doing wrong to not be taken seriously. And then I found this community and it was like all women who had the same experiences as I did. And it really helped me differentiate between what was my lived experience and what was unique to me and what was sort of systemic and part of this industry that we all together could sort of fight against. I love that. That's awesome. Something that I found really interesting while I was doing a little bit of research about you is that one of your goals at your wedding was to create a sense of community among your guests. I'm so curious about, you know, how did you do this? And also just that wedding was so beautiful and congratulations. Thank you. I love talking about my wedding. <laughs> the short story is that my husband and I are obsessed with our friends and our family and we, we love the people in our lives. And very few of our kind of independent friend groups have met each other. 
And so it was really, really important to us that every choice we made at the wedding be about uniting and bonding these different groups of friends and these different relatives of ours into one cohesive, unified community. That was the point. Without that, it's like, why spend the money just to lope? You know, that was sort of the reason to have a wedding. And so what we decided to do was have a surprise ceremony because there's nothing quite like trauma to bond people. And a surprise ceremony is a positive form of trauma. So we, on Friday night at what was supposed to be the rehearsal dinner, decided to surprise everyone, which we had been planning the whole time, and just tell people, hey, you know, we're going to get married right here, right now. Let's just do this. And everyone was shocked. It created this sort of shared experience, this shared memory, this story that people could tell. And by the end of the weekend, I mean, everyone was best friends. It was like it totally, totally worked because people had the shared experience and the shared memory. I love that. I don't know if I've heard the word trauma and wedding in the same sentence, but it's such a positive thing. And that's so awesome. That, that definitely bonded people. And what a unique idea. So you mentioned that you're obsessed with your friends. I love that. I think I am too. How do you choose them? Like, how do you choose the people that are closest to you? That's interesting. I've been sort of reflecting on what do my friends have in common? Because my group of friends are all really different than each other. Like an architect and an actor and a stand-up comedian and, you know, a bunch of different sort of creative types. But I think there is a self-assuredness. Like my friends are very much themselves. And as I look back, kind of always have been. They know who they are. They're not trying to be somebody else. They're weird and they're quirky, but they're also cool and normal when they need to be and have a great sense of humor. And so I sort of pick people who are comfortable with themselves. And I think what we all have in common is probably that everyone's in therapy in some way, which is a, which is a sign of being interested in self-reflection and self-exploration and a kind of fluency in talking about yourself and your feelings and your life experiences. And that's sort of what brings everyone together. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Yeah, so when I was at Facebook, we did a year-long analysis of the word community. It was a very thorough lit review and lots of interviews. And ultimately, we define community as a collection of people who give and receive. So you give a you know, investment, time, support, and you receive a sense of safety and belonging over time. So to me, community is about a collection of people who give to each other and receive things in return. And that currency of giving and getting back and forth, back and forth, is the currency of the community. I love that. That's such a good way to define it and totally agree with you on that. Awesome. Lisa, thank you so much again for joining me. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice chatting with you. I had such a great time chatting with Lisa, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can find Lisa on LinkedIn by searching for Lisa Khan, which is spelled with two N's. And on Instagram, Lisa goes by Lisa Pizza Pie. And on Twitter, she's Lisa D. Khan. And you can learn more about Icebreaker and host an event at icebreaker.video. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. 
You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.